This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Vanessa McCausland, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you so much for having me. So you're a newbie on the podcast. I am. I've never been on before. Oh, wow. Well, welcome. I don't know. It's very remiss of us not to have had you. (laughs) You've been published since 2019. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay, we'll get into that. Uh, And you've been listening to our podcast? I have. I have for many years. Oh, good. And here you are. Okay. Well, Vanessa studied English and Australian literature at the University of Sydney and dreamed of one day writing fiction. She then went on to immerse herself completely in writing about real people, working as a journalist for 20 years. Vanessa has been a news, medical, entertainment and arts reporter for the Daily Telegraph and her writing has appeared in numerous other publications. Her latest novel, Dreaming in French, is a deeply retellable story showing how we became increasingly efficient at keeping secrets of our lives under wraps until they emerge demanding to be seen and dealt with. It is such a beautiful book. Thank you, Cheryl. What book number is it? It's four. It's number four. Yeah, it's number four. Yeah. Okay, shall we go back to 2019? Shall we go back to why you decided you're not going to be a journalist and you're going to be a writer? Or did the two ever overlap? Oh, I think that I knew that I wanted to write in some capacity from a very young age, but I was quite practical about that. I knew that writing a book probably wouldn't be a realistic thing in my 20s um, and probably not a great way to earn a living. And so I thought, well, journalism, I can actually write and I can get paid. Did you study journalism? Uh, Look, I didn't because I'm quite old. And so there, there wasn't a lot of journalism courses um, back when I was, you know. Oh, is that right? No, yeah. um, there's so many now, but there was one in Bathurst and there was one at UTS. Right. And I was a little romantic at the age of 17 and I wanted to go to Sydney University because it was beautiful. Yes. <laughs> and so I was like, there's no way I'm going to UTS and doing, you know, being in all that concrete. So I did an arts degree thinking I'd go into law actually, but ended up, you know, I ended up studying theatre and French and all sorts of things. And I love how you're all, you're already thinking about your setting. Like, you know, you didn't yeah. want all that concrete. <laughs> I was. I'm very affected my, by my environment. Yeah. And so I just knew that I couldn't I couldn't be happy there. Mm. Um, and it is an odd building, although I think that's changing now, isn't it? At I'm UTS. sure it's. Yeah. I'm sure it's very cool now. And more I, outdoor spaces. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, you know, at 17, you're dreaming of living in Newtown with your friends and you know yeah. partying and all of that. So yeah. it just it fit into my vision for myself to go to Sydney Uni. But um, I ended up doing an internship at the Daily Telegraph. And how did you get that? Um, 
Look, I just... How did I get it? I think they I just... would have been few and far between. Yes, they yeah. were. I worked in publicity for a little while and did arts, publicity and theatre and dance. And then I just thought, no, I want to be on the other side of things. I mm. want to be the person that is doing the interviewing and going out and writing the stories. And so I, somehow I weaseled my way in to do a week's internship. But luckily, um, one of the arts reporters... She, I don't know, she had to go somewhere or do something and they just said to me, okay, you're going to be editing um, the art section for a couple of days. And I'm like, mm. okay. <laughs> and I just got thrown in and I just loved it. And then I did that um, for free for a long time and then eventually got a cadetship. Yeah, um, wow. And I think that's how a lot of people start. They, they actually work for free and then when people can see they're good, they get the cadetship. I have such a problem with people working for free. I know, yeah. I know. People I know. often say to me, oh, you should get interns. Mm. And I think, I just, I can't, I, I just can't bring myself to doing that. Yeah. You know, somebody once said to me, the problem with you, Cheryl, is like you like to pay people. <laughs> and I was like, well, I think that's how the system is meant to work. Exactly. And obviously I was in a place of privilege to be yes. able to do that. Um, yes. And not everyone has no. that ability. Yeah. With a cadetship, do they give you, is there any kind of formal training? Yes. And I still have dear friends um, that I that I met in cadet kindy. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we call it that. And we every week got sort of drilled on different things. We learnt shorthand. Right. Um, as part of it, we got seconded to Gosford on the Central Coast yeah. where we had to work on the local community paper and all these sort of young cadets lived together. Um, it was very fun but very, very hard and demanding. Yeah. Um, Speaking of community newspapers, um, I've been thinking about that recently, you know, because we've become so globalised. And many years ago when they were starting to disappear, I used to think, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, of course. I mean, that was never going to work. What mm. do, people don't want to know what just happens around them. You mm. know, people want to know what's happening in the bigger, wider world. Yeah. But I've changed my view on that entirely as wow. I've grown up because it really all starts in your community. Mm. And if you don't know what's happening in your community, that's, I think, where the problems start. Whether you're looking and searching for happiness in a wider place or you're starting to worry about what's happening in the world Mm. and forgetting about what's happening where you live. Absolutely. Mm. And there's sort of like a bit of an epidemic of loneliness and I think that is the globalisation of everything. Mm. And yes, you might have millions of friends, but it's friends in inverted commas. Mm. Um, But do you know your neighbours, you know? and Do you know what's happening in your community town hall? Do you know that... You know, you can go and, I don't know, play something at mm. that town hall. That that kind of thing. I think it's been a real loss. Absolutely. To Absolutely. And, you know, my dad, who's in his 80s now, he used to love the Manly, da- the Manly Daily that he of got course. every, you know, yeah. and he still misses it. And I'm sure there are a lot of older people mm. that do. Mm. And um, I look at that in the United States as well on a bigger level. I think the l- losing community is what's caused or has been part of the disgruntlement of... Mm 
a lot of people, you know, that the fact that they're not heard, that yeah. they're not listened to. Yeah. Anyway, okay, we we, <laughs> <laughs> we digress. We did digress. <laughs> We're coming back to you. So you worked for a local paver. Yes. Yep. And yeah, I did the cadetship and then I got put on a round and I was doing uh, a medical round. So, um, and this was after doing like a year of um, news reporting, which I have to say was pretty interesting. So um, I was on the mid-dawn shift. I don't know yeah. whether you've heard that, but um, it's when you start at 10pm and finish at 6am. Wow. And the you, night shift. The night shift. I was um, this little blonde in my early 20s who grew up on the northern beaches and I was in a car with a driver and a photographer and a police scanner and we would just go and sit at Auburn McDonald's and wait for crimes to happen. Oh my um, goodness. And Just knowing that they would happen in that area. Yeah. Oh, yes. that's terrible, yeah. isn't it? But um, what about if crimes happened in other areas? We went, that was just a central point um, and we did sort of move around to different places, but um, wherever the police radio sort of bleated yeah. and if it was a big thing, we would go. Um, and so I'd be like getting out of the car at 3am talking to police officers. I saw like my first dead body in a car crash, you know, things uh. like that. You know, we'd go to brawls um, where I remember one time I was just surrounded by all these young men and luckily there were some police there, but it was quite confronting. Mm. I saw sort of a part of Sydney that I guess I had been quite sheltered by, but, you know, found it really interesting as well. Because mm. um, that's where the stories are. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, crime and, and you know, stories just keep going 24-7. Mm. And I did that shift for many months. Um, and it's such a strange feeling when you're driving around at 3am mm. and Everyone Looking is asleep. Trouble. Yeah, yeah. It's a really sort of warped kind of reality, but yeah, it just showed me um, I, a different part of Sydney and different mm. part of myself. And I found it. I think I found it quite inval- invaluable in a way. Mm. And the adrenaline would have been going, I'd imagine. Yes, exactly. Mm. So it's interesting. I, I'm not a crime writer, really, after all that. Mm. Mm. Um, but I do always have like a like darker elements through my mm. books and definitely a mystery element. And the book that I'm write that I have just written that's coming out next is more of a psychological thriller. So maybe mm. it's finally coming mm. through. Because Michael Robotham, I think, was a crime journalist. Was he? Yeah, for a uh. while before, well, for a long while, I think, and then went on to write other things. Okay. All right. So you're, you're a journalist. And when do you think that it's, the time is right for you to write? So I actually, um, I wrote a novel in my early 30s, actually, and it's a novel that was with a different publisher and under a different name. And that was my first attempt at a novel. And I was so shocked when it got acquired and I got an agent and it got published because I was like, oh, okay, wow, I've got a book being published. Mm. But um, it didn't go well. Um, and I, I think it was just a, a matter of the marketing being wrong or maybe I hadn't found my feet as a writer. And so... Was it the first book you'd actually written? Yes, okay. it was. Yeah, because um, there is practice, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think at the time I was actually 
uh, entertainment reporter right. um, for MX newspaper, which was a commuter mm. paper in mm-hmm. Sydney and Melbourne. And it was more that side of things. It was sort of um, a book about a Sydney reporter and a Hollywood superstar kind of thing. It was a little bit more... Um, yeah, it was it was where I was at in my mm. early twenties. Nicole Sorry. Lisa Dahl, but female. Yeah, it, yeah. so early thirties I was. Yeah, so it was a weird thing where the the first book got published, but then I had a two book deal, and the second book didn't get picked up because it didn't it hadn't done well enough. Right. So it was easy for me to get published, but then sort of hard for me to stay published. Yes. So I had a weird That's beginning. That's an interesting point because a lot of people don't talk about that, how yeah. hard it is to stay published. Absolutely. Because, yeah. you know, it's one thing to write a book and publish it, but if people don't love it, they're not yeah. going to publish you again. What year was that? I think it was around maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. Do you know, the reason why I'm asking you that is, and you'll know this, is there has been, um, readers have changed in over the years, right? Yes. And that's why I'm asking, because there has been um, a popularity about writing, women writers. Um, mm. And do you know, I think maybe Jane Harper started that, maybe Leah mm. Moriarty. Yes. You know, earlier Leah Moriarty. And for a long time, I think female writers weren't as valued, mm. not in the eyes of the reader, mind you, but I think in the eyes of the reviewers yep. and in the eyes of how much publishers were prepared to put marketing behind or mm. publicity behind. Yep. And I think what happened, it was the rise of social media that mm. started to connect more readers with their, with writers, yeah. and the readers themselves are telling us now what they wanted to hear, what mm. they want to read, and I think that's why we got this popularity of women writers, particularly in Australia. I don't know if it's global, mm-hmm. um, but here we really have had this great um, interest and and desire and appetite for reading women's fiction of all genres. You yeah. know, just. And I think that's fantastic. And I think it's because the review world changed. Yes. You know, for a long time it was just, I mean, I don't know if there was even any book reviewers when you were working as a journalist, mm-hmm. but for a long time they were, you know, largely male, they were mm-hmm. largely literary mm-hmm. and they would review books that were, you know, only 200 available in the entire country yeah. and a whole genre of women's writers mm-hmm. was never mentioned or yeah. always excluded. Yeah. So it could have been around that time. Yeah, I think you really right. Things have absolutely shifted in the past 10 years. I, I think it's so wonderful. And the fact that it's sort of reader driven mm-hmm. is is beautiful. I um, think we can thank social media for that. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And also I think, um, you know, when I look back on that book, my character, a lot of the um, criticism was that my character wasn't likeable. Yeah. And in that genre, I think that's what was expected. But I think now things are totally different mm. because I write now very complex characters who aren't necessarily straight up likeable. They're pretty damaged. And I don't get that feedback anymore. And yes, it's a slightly different genre of book. What is the genre? Um, well, it's hard to know how to 
to yes. where to put my books, I think. Um, I don't think you need to worry about that because I say to people all the time when I'm talking to writers, genre very, very rarely gets mentioned mm. on our conversations mm. about reading. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we have hundreds and thousands yeah. of readers that interact yeah. with us. But I am telling you, every one of those readers is looking for a good story. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, I think that that's changed as well in that I think we want to read about complex women. Um, And with that book, I'm not ashamed of it. Um, I think that was where I sort of was working out how to write a book, you know. But, um, But I do think that the industry has also really changed in the past 10 years. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We all bring something to what we're reading now. You know, we, at the end of the day, we sit down and read a fiction book. It's really what you're bringing to it is mm. what your day was like, you know. Yes. And I think as a writer, it's the same thing. I mean, you can't write about an experience in the future putting yourself in it. Anyway, okay, let's move on to your next book. Um, so, yes, my... Did you decide that you were going to change what you were writing? Yeah, this? yeah. Tell so, me how that came Well, about. I basically gave up on being a writer after that first book hadn't gone a- hadn't hadn't been successful and the mm. second book in the deal was cancelled. So That's I thought... deflating, never Never doing that again. That mm. was a big mistake. That was hard. Um, so I went back to journalism and threw myself into that and I was also a mother by that point. Mm-hmm. Um And I ended up taking a redundancy from uh, my last journalism job at MX newspaper and that was the most fun job. I was like lifestyle, travel, food, beauty, news, um, everything reporter. Like I just had the most, in retrospect, the best life. But at the time I was just like busy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so then I was like, okay, I'm going to take a redundancy and rest for a while. I'd been... Um, a journalist for about 13 years and my husband just very very graciously said why don't you try and write something just start again and just write what you want and just leave all that messiness and pain behind and I thought and we just moved house into this old house and looked over the garden and I just thought okay I've got a little study here I'm just gonna see what comes out And that was when I wrote The Lost Summers of Driftwood. Um, And it was a different style of book. And I really really love writing. I really love words. And I really love writing 
sort of um, lyrically, I guess. And so I really focused on um, the river in that book and, um, you know, lots of lovely feedback about it was that the river felt like a character in its own right. And I felt like with that book I really suddenly found finally my voice which was with, and your style and my style which was to write with a very strong sense of place and having themes of sort of past and present I always have a dual timeline in all my books um, and so I wrote that book and I still had an agent and she sold it to HarperCollins right. and so then that was the first in the four books I've written with them and mm. I love my publisher there and feel very you can, you can understood give her a shout out. Oh, Anna Valding. Yeah, she's, she's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Going back to the old house and looking over the garden, did you approach it like a job, like your writing, like the discipline? How did you firstly come up with an idea, okay, well, I'm going to do this? I mm. mean, did you have an idea that was just brewing? Um, how did you approach the writing? Um I sort of did treat it a little bit like a job in that... Mm, Because it is a job. I gave myself a year um, or less really um, and I thought, well, that's when the redundancy money will run out. (laughs) So I had a bit of a timeline. But at the same time, I do... I do think there's a little bit of magic in the mix. So while, yes, I have a very strong writing discipline, I also sort of believe that you have to follow the magic in some ways and you have to be respectful of your own process and sort of give it time if it needs time. Mm. And so I took my time with that book and it was quite a personal book because it was inspired by a place on this river on the south coast that I'd grown up as a child with my family and it was dedicated to my grandmother who had lived there um, and who passed away quite suddenly and tragically. So it was quite a emotional sort of nostalgic feeling which mm. I think really helped me to find find my style um, and find the beauty in that book to mm. sort of yeah to, to, to write another book to have the courage to, to go back mm. when I was sort of so scared that it would fail mm. um, after having felt like a failure mm. yeah it's funny that you felt like a failure because so many people I know <laughs> 20 30. 40 tries to get published, you Mm. know, it's so much. And also, too, if you look at actors, you know, in auditions, there's so many rejections, you know. Yes, I know. I had it sort of round the other way where it seemed so easy and I got the book deal but then it sort of didn't work out after the fact. And then I had to recalibrate and reassess. But I'm really grateful for that learning experience because now whenever I put a book out I don't take it for granted Mm. and I know the vulnerability involved in you know putting your work out there and every bit of feedback that I get from readers is is just so amazing you know when you really connect with a reader Mm. because I don't feel like that first book did that Mm. so now when my subsequent books do they it just feels incredible Mm. Mm, it's very special when they connect with the reader, isn't it? Oh, it's yeah. It's mm. I think why why writers write. Mm. Um, well, mm. it's why, why I write. Mm. Yeah. 
And so what does your writing day look like? So at the moment, I'm just coming off the back of promoting Dreaming in French. So, and I'm just going into big structural edits for the next book. So my editing day is quite... Um, when I, when I do edits, I could be in the zone for 10 hours yeah, and wow. not come out. Like the focus is very, very strong. It's a similar focus um, to when I was a journalist because you're engaging your logical, rational mind a lot mm. of the time. Um, and in a way, it's sort of somewhat easier than when you're actually trying to write the first draft mm-hmm. because you're... Um, you've also got guidance from your editors and you've got sort of a plan and you're working through the document comment by comment. That's a very sort of cut and dried part of the process. But when I'm creating a first draft, it's a little bit more wafty. So I'll go for a walk in the morning um, to try and get myself in a creative mind space because walking really helps with that. And then I'll sort of sit down with my cup of tea. I'll light a candle because that's my, okay, you're in writing mode now. Um, And then I'll flounder. (laughs) (laughs) And then you'll stop, light your cup of tea and enjoy the candle. And and just go, why am I doing this? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I thought you were going to say, and then I power away. No, 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 not at all. Not for that first draft. It's always really hard. Is that... So the first draft is you've had that story swirling around in your head for some time, right? Is that right? Well, sometimes no. Sometimes you've kind of just got a bit of an inkling and you're trying to flesh the inkling out (laughs) to see if it's even got legs and to see what that first, you know, what that voice is going to sound like and is it going to be first person, is it going to be third person, Um, how am I going to piece this together? And I heard someone say um, what writing the first draft feels like is sitting in uncertainty. Mm. It's just sitting with that uncertainty day after day after day and it's very difficult because Mm. that's what creativity essentially is. Mm. um, It's staring into, you know, the ether, the question marks that, oh, gosh, I don't think I can do this. But at the same time... I've done it several times before, so you're like, okay, no, stick with this. Something's going to come of this. Mm. And it always kind of does, and I'm always sort of amazed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can write a book. Yeah. Oh, I can write a book. It feels like that. It it really feels like that. It does. I I mean, I I spoke to Lee Child many years ago now, Um, you know, the very huge... Mm. Um, author, crime fiction, and he said to me, um, which I thought was quite interesting, um, and and just he said it in such a nonchalant way, every time I sit down to write, it's as hard as the first book. Mm. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I know. (laughs) If he says it, you know what, who do any of us have? That's right. Well, because I can't remember how many books he's got, but he's got to be up to, you know, 20 or something. No, I think... I've heard mm. a lot of authors say that mm. and I've got a lot of dear author friends now in the Sydney community and we all just like on social media or whatever or just WhatsApping each other going, oh my God, yeah. I can't I do this. Why, yeah. why Why? was this a good idea to yeah, start? I know. Why am I in this job? <laughs> yes. Tell me tell me a little bit about uh, Dreaming in French. By the way, I love the title so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And the cover. 
Yeah. Um, so do you want me to give you a bit of a yes. synopsis? Yeah. Um, so basically, um, Saskia Weil is um, a woman living in Sydney um, with her family when she receives a letter from a French solicitor telling her that she's inherited half of a crumbling villa on a tiny island off the southwest coast of France called Ile de Ré. And she returns to this island with her family and it's where she spent a summer as a 19-year-old au pair. Um, And it was here that she met um, Simone Durant, a French heiress, and Félix Allard, a salt worker. And Simone has left Saskia half of this beautiful villa by the the sea and the other half to Félix, who is now a reclusive film star living on the island. And she's also um, left Saskia a manuscript written in French, which she must translate in order to sort of figure out why Simone has drawn her back to this island that's haunted her for 26 years. Um, And it's written partly in the present as we return to the island with Saskia and her family and partly in the past during this summer in the 90s Mm. when... Saskia Felix and Simone um, sort of met and spent it together and Saskia has to work out what really happened in the past in order to save what is most precious to her in the present. Mm. Mm. Is it a slight departure from your last three books? Oh look it is in terms of setting so this one's obviously set in France Um, the others have all been set um, in various locations in Australia south coast with the first the KPT Valley over the Blue Mountains with the second, uh, Bruny Island and Tasmania with the third, and France with this one. And I have been learning French since year seven at mm. high school. I um, can tell by that accent that <laughs> you knew French. Um, yeah. I myself lived on Ile de Ré uh, uh-huh. as a 19-year-old. And so I, when I was sort of searching around for um, the setting, because that's one of the places that I start with a book, yeah. knowing where it's set helps me to ground everything. Um, I thought, well, what about if I set it on this island? I mean, I haven't been there in more than 20 years, but I lived there for six months. Yeah. And it's an absolutely stunning uh, little island. So it's you can ride from one end to the other in two hours wow. on a bike. What um, were you doing there? I was an au pair. Oh, wow, lovely. <laughs> yeah, I... I, I just wanted, I think, at 19 to go to the other side of the world by yeah. myself. Yeah. Um, I guess I just have always had a, quite an adventurous spirit. I don't know. I was in my second year at uni and I was studying French at uni and I remember thinking, I just want to go there and speak it. And so when you refer to the title Dreaming in French, it's definitely uh, sort of um, referring to that moment where you start to dream in another language and you start to, um, it sort of seeps into your subconscious and you realise that you're fully fluent. And I think um, that was really what I I needed. I needed to go there. Um, I needed an adventure. And so this book was in a way my way in middle age of revisiting that same adventurous spirit that I had at 19. And unfortunately, I have commitments and can't jump on a plane and go by myself. But in a way, I could do it with this book. Yeah, lovely. Vanessa, thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful having you on the podcast and great conversation. Thank you, Cheryl. It was so nice. 
If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.